Hey, everybody, welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson, and very excited about today because I'm returning to my series, which I have called Stuff That Helps. And I want to talk about the book Iron John by Robert Bly. I'm actually only going to talk about the first chapter of the book Iron John. And this book changed my life. I'll say something about that in a few minutes. But in addition to just giving you a little taste for the terrain here of the book and its importance, and its importance right now in the cultural moment we find ourselves, I also had an idea a couple, I don't know, weeks ago, months ago, that I wanted to talk about what I call the sacred masculine which is what the book of Iron John hovers around. And I want to do a deep dive for those of you who feel called to this conversation or want to deepen your own relationship with the sacred masculine. And this fall, starting in September, I'm going to offer a nine-month Zoom course. Every once in a while, I do these long uh, uh, format courses And I want to do one called Iron John, Exploring the Sacred Masculine. So that's going to start in September. We're going to meet once a month on Zoom. It's going to be a combination of a deep study of this book and of the myth and of some of my own thoughts and and teachings, but also um, a chance for us to converse together in in a small group setting. I'm going to, in addition provide some practices and a one-on-one session for whoever signs up. So that's on my website. Check it, check it out, kentopson.com. It's right on the main page. Um, and you can read a brief description of it and then click and apply for the course. It's going to be, uh, the space is limited. So I encourage you, if this interests you, to hop on there right away. Uh, the only requirement is that you buy the book and you commit to the nine months and you go as deep as you can. So that's, that's happening. And, and I, I hope this podcast will be just a taste of some of what we're going to be wandering around in as we seek to understand the myth and a little bit of Robert Bly's spin on the myth. So um, what do I want to say here? at the beginning, I guess I first want to say that the time is right for us to speak about the masculine, about the sacred masculine. There is no question that it's hard to talk about this right now, especially with all of the cultural conversations around gender, with words like toxic masculinity or patriarchy or male privilege being discussed and thrown around, often with very little definition. And it's pretty clear to me that men in particular receive a lot of mixed messages like be a man or don't be a man or being a man is bad or being a male is bad or being a male is good or what is a man? (laughs) And it's a confusing time. And we have very few role models and elders and people we would look up to and say, here's an expression of 
the deepest, richest stream of the masculine. And when I say masculine, I, I, I mean not just something physical, that's more gender, but um, something that is deep in the psyche. And we're having a hard time growing up. I, I just returned from an amazing five-day immersion in, uh, what was it called? <laughs> anyway, this was an Annus Valley Institute program. I was called Soulcraft Intensive. And there were about 18 participants and two guides, and I was one of the apprentices, or the only apprentice on this one. I'm in the guide training program, as I've mentioned before, Animus Valley Institute in Colorado, started by Bill Plotkin. And it was just really life-giving to be with so many interesting people, not too far from Telluride, Colorado, in the Aspen Groves at 9,000 feet. So really, I just feel really grateful. And it's been a long time since I've had the opportunity because of COVID to do these kinds of things. So anyway, um, feeling, well, just grateful and uh, satisfied. It was a satisfying experience. And someone on the, someone on the trip who was a self-described feminist was talking a bit about patriarchy and she said something which I thought was quite beautiful. She said very directly, it's not that women have suffered under patriarchy. Sure, that's true. But what's often hidden and not discussed is that men have suffered under patriarch patriarchy deeply. And this needs to be brought out into the open. And there was something about her authenticity and genuineness that touched me. And also, I think what she's saying is true. We don't know what to say at this point, especially if you're a white male like me. And there's a tendency to retreat or to not want to talk about it or to hide or to feel guilty or to apologize. And... What's my point? My point is we're living in a, in a tricky time. And for me, Iron John came into my life at just the right time. I was probably about 35, somewhere around there. And I was listening to one of Richard Rohr's talks, who himself had kind of introduced me to words like initiation and rites of passage and the question of masculinity and the question of, of being a man in some of his books and teachings. And one time he just said in passing, well, we were all reading Iron John in the 80s, and he just kind of kept going. And I thought, well, I wasn't reading Iron John in the 80s. I was um, wearing parachute pants and listening to Michael Jackson, and well, not too intensely. It was kind of off-limits in fundamentalist circles. Christian fundamentalist circles. Um, anyway, I was trying to. <laughs> but what the, what the hell is Iron John? And so I bought a copy and read it. And I read most of it on a plane to Alaska to visit one of my good friends who's an Alaska state trooper. And it just absolutely leveled me. And in fact, I had to occasionally shut the book 
and even ask, what is this? What kind of book is this? Who writes like this? Who muses on myths like this with such ease and uh, fierceness? And many of the things that he said, that, that Robert Bly said, even in the opening chapter, just cut me to my core, pinned me to the plane seat, and really helped open up both a well of grief, touching some of my own wounds, and helped to wake up a kind of deep longing. And I began to, well, he began to help put words around my own models for the masculine and my own sort of even schizophrenic feeling about masculinity and about the energies that are often associated with the masculine, my own mixed feelings about it, I could say more, more simply. And, and I began to think about just the role models that I had and, and, and television images, you know, oftentimes you get sort of the bumbling male on commercials and on programs and the inept father who's just kind of silly, but friendly, but kind of a buffoon. And, um, actually Robert Bly says, I think in the opening, uh, chapter of the book, he says, oftentimes the writers in Hollywood have really bad relationships with their fathers back in Kansas. And instead of dealing with it, they put it on the page. So <laughs> sort of a, a sideways critique at what's happening in, I guess, in, in these circles in media. So anyway, I mean, one of the things that just became so evident to me right at the beginning was even my understanding, my, or my understanding of, of, masculinity had been shaped by a certain version of Jesus who, you know, the Jesus of the, the white robe and the flowing hair and the sash, like the Miss America sash, and, and really a Jesus of niceness, a Jesus that frolics with lambs and has kids on his lap. And yeah, that one time he got mad in the temple, but he was just kind of making a point. He, there's, there's not an angry bone in his body. Um, and he's essentially passive. That's not a word I would have known as a kid, but uh, it's something that is talked about in the, in the myth of Iron John. But he's passive. He's, um, you can sit down and just have a real emotionally vulnerable conversation with him. He's not going to ask too much, really. And not only later on did I discover this is a, its own unique kind of misreading of Jesus, a kind of caricature, and is not at all really even connected to, an, to a reading of, an honest reading of Jesus in the Gospels or what we might call the historical Jesus. I think even some of my own desire to go down the path of, of wanting to know the historical Jesus was really because I started to look at the Americanized, Westernized, white uh, Jesus and say, yeah, no, no, that's, that's not, not at all clear. All the things that Jesus says that are really challenging, like most of them, we sort of whitewashed. Like a Jesus who says, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. Or, um, Jesus, I want to follow you, but uh, I have to go bury my father. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. And 
um, he says to, he calls a Canaanite woman a dog. And, um, you know, on and on and on the list goes. He feeds 5,000 people and the next day he's angry and says, you're just coming back because you're hungry. You don't really know what I'm talking about or what I'm even up to. And, um, yeah, that, that Jesus, <laughs> you know, the, there's, you know, we love to think about Jesus as a pacifist and I don't know for sure, but do you know, he also says right at the end of his life, okay, enough is enough. Sell your cloak and buy a sword. When was the last time you heard a sermon called sell your cloak and buy a sword? Unless, you know, it was given by some sort of machismo, macho male, um, you know, kind of war, war happy male. I don't know how many preachers are really like that, but uh, my main point right now is that this, this colored my view and my, and my, my own father was quite passive and everyone would have said of him, he was kind and nice and he could sit in any room and hear both sides and, uh, you know, didn't have any power tools and hired out, you know, home repairs and didn't know how to fix a car. And none of this I'm critiquing. I'm just saying it's just the way it is. And, um, you know, thankfully I had other men in my life, which, you know, took me to deer camp and, uh, taught me how to shoot guns and, uh, other things that became important to me when I was in junior high and, and high school. And, um, but my own relationship with my father, which is really the opening chapter, which I'll get to in a second, which he calls the pillow and the key, the opening part of the myth here, is about both the father-son dynamic and the mother-father dynamic that is just part of the human condition and part of, part of the challenge of growing up psychologically. And, and one of the unique things that Bly says about the kind of passive male, he says, in some ways this is a reaction, and there are healthy dimensions to this reaction, of the 50s man. This is really what feminism came down hard on. This is the post-industrial-aged, aloof, power-hungry, uh, domineering, successful masculinity, macho, we could say. And, uh, and it should be critiqued. It should be challenged. Sometimes Robert Bly likes to call, likes to say, well, he says in the book that there's a difference between the wild man and the savage man or the macho man or the domineering man or the man uh, bent on empire or war for war's sake or um, treats other people like objects and women like objects. That's not the wild man or that's not Iron John as we come to learn his full name over time. So anyway, this 1950s industrial age, post-industrial age masculinity needs a serious critique. And he says what happened in the 1960s is what he, what he calls the passive man, the feminized man, becomes the only alternative. And that doesn't serve, the in the long run, doesn't serve the masculine very well, doesn't serve men very well. And it doesn't serve 
the sacred feminine well either. And that, that's a whole nother complex uh, conversation. But he basically says, that's my generation. That's the generation of my own father. And so this had something to do with Vietnam and a, and a confluence of, of a lot of historical and cultural circumstances the, and cultural evolution, we could even say. And he's saying, he wrote this book in the 1980s, I believe, and he's saying, yeah, it's now time to, to look at this stuff carefully. And one of the things I'm just noticing, I'm just fast forwarding to 2020, is that a lot of the work that Robert Bly, I think, was helping to initiate has now gone underground in a way and has been forgotten. So that's why I want to bring it up. I think this stuff helps, and I think it's time we uh, take a look at it. And and maybe I want to say something about Donald Trump here, because partway through his presidency, well, I mean, I, I sort of noticed this right when he was running for president, but it really like was striking me the further into the presidency he went, just how much he was a, a figure, was and is a figure for our personal and collective projections. Maybe this is always true of people who are in authority. Um, you know, my own analyst is always warning me about, about being a teacher and a minister and because of the projections that happen. She's absolutely right. I heard someone say the clerical collar is a projection screen, which is very true. You know, so much more so something like the presidency and much more someone like the figure of Donald Trump. He's, he has been both a figure for some for their golden projections and for others their shadow projections. And he's a lightning rod. And, and I, I want to say what a tremendous opportunity we have to look at this. And just kind of as, as an aside, I think it's interesting, you know, a hundred years of, of deep feminist critique in, in literature and politics, you know, 20 years, we could say, of that trickling into the academy, into higher education. I went to Liberty University, you know, like this is a Christian school. And we also, you know, in my literary criticism class, how to look at feminism. So um, you might say, oh, big surprise. Well, it's, it's part of the academic um, it's, it should be at least part of, part of what needs to happen in the, in the classroom. But we could say, you know, 20, 30 years of this, of being raised with this in our awareness and really a lot of good things. I know there's a lot more work to do, but a lot of good things happening, um, around equality when it comes to men and women in the workplace and at least these questions are now part of the dominant consciousness you have to remember they weren't even part of the consciousness of the 1950s really except in a few small circles so all this and we still elect donald trump who the caricature of him and out of his own mouth and out of his own behavior we have someone who apparently treats women like objects, is prone to angry, childish outbursts, can be a bully, and is a bully, is the, the, the caricature of the successful businessman that plows over people who worships at the altar of the economy and of, and of success and uh, in a hierarchy of privilege and is at the top. 
we still elect someone like that. So what's going on, you know? What have we not learned? And I guess we could, we could also say, what have we misunderstood? What have we deeply misunderstood? And I just want to say, let's not miss this opportunity. Let's not miss this opportunity to look in the mirror and, and, and ask, what the hell is going on? And young people are having a really hard time. I think even the, the very potent and important conversations around gender and gender identity that are now in the mainstream, you know, uh, conversation, I think are raising these issues, raising psychological issues beneath the issues of sort of biology and gender and identity. And what about the psyche? What is the psyche made up of? And one of the things we know from depth psychologists like Carl Jung is that the psyche is both masculine and feminine what he called the anima and the animus. And a healthy psyche is in relationship with the counter-sexual dimension of their, own, uh, of their own psyche. This is the anima and the animus, the inner feminine and the inner masculine, and everyone has both. So how do we cultivate that? And how do we cultivate a deep relationship with our own inner masculine and, and or our own inner feminine. So I want to make a claim here right at, at the beginning. I know this is a long beginning. There is a sacred dimension to being a man. That's what I want to say as directly and as plainly as I can. There's such thing as the sacred masculine. That's a belief and a conviction and a felt experience and something that absolutely has to be preserved. I will die on this hill that there is such a thing as the sacred masculine and, and you're not going to get it in a podcast. You're not going to get it by reading Iron John, but you're going to get a taste for it. And it absolutely has to be cultivated. The amazing, amazing thing about myths and stories is they invite us into this conversation. They whisper to us, it's hard to grow up. It's hard to grow up. It's hard to grow up. It's hard for the boy to become a man. This fiery time period of adolescence, this crucible where we used to have rites of passage and initiations and fasts and ceremonies and sacred um, and, uh, and physical wounds that represented the sacred wounds are gone. And we give a 16-year-old boy the keys to a car if we're privileged enough and we say, good luck, have fun, uh, and they go to the drive-thru. You know, this is, not, this is not sacred terrain. And, and the sacred dimension of the masculine is transpersonal and archetypal, meaning it's, everyone has it personally, but it's transpersonal. We all carry this deep, deep, deep in the psyche. And, and it's archetypal. And I don't mean archetypal. And, you know, a friend of mine said, why do you always say archetypal? It's like not a word that I'm familiar with and it sounds fancy. And I was like, hey, good point. I'm not trying to be pretentious. An archetype is a pattern. It's a pattern that's true, that is true because it exists across time and transcends language and ethnicity and geography. And what I'm saying is when you're dealing with the sacred masculine, you're dealing with the archetypal. And, and cultures have preserved dimensions of the sacred masculine in their own myths and stories and gods um, and legends and rites of passage and in the, 
the, the wisdom of the ancestors and the elders and the initiators, the uncles. <clears throat> so that's my claim. And um, that's why I want to talk a bit about, about Iron John. And I just want to emphasize this point that the road to healing is to embrace the sacred dimension. Because right now, I agree, there's a lot of shit um, that, you know, it is in the mainstream, masculine, uh, machismo, success-driven uh, culture right now. And it has to be critiqued. But the primary form of critique right now is shame. This became really obvious to me over the last four years with the with the presidency of Donald Trump, I realized that the left was using shame as the primary uh, technique, or the primary critique, and and it doesn't work. I'm saying this as a fundamentalist kid who it wasn't the only thing. I've actually changed my mind a lot on on fundamentalist culture or my evangelical upbringing. I've seen a lot more good in the last you know, really last couple years than I was ever able to see before. And maybe that's just part of becoming a little, I hope, a little more mature, a little growing up a little bit. Um, but shame was our specialty, you know, shame was our specialty around, around sex, especially and, um, around sins and smoking and drinking and chewing and drugs and, and anger and, uh, you know, exuberance and wildness and shame, shame, shame was, was all around. And, and all, and I just saw, okay, wait a minute. This is, this is what the, the progressives are now using. <laughs> shame, shame, shame. I, I remember even, um, seeing on television, uh, I think this was, uh, with, uh, Betsy DeVos, the edu education secretary walking, you know, to a classroom and, and, and people shouting the word shame. I thought, okay, here we go. So what I'm saying is that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And um, it doesn't lead people to, to the path of maturity. It, it actually doesn't work in either party. The party that's being shamed and the party that's doing the shaming, it, it, it helps create, talk about a toxic environment. That's a toxic environment. So we have to say something like, well, how do we heal and cultivate um, the masculine and, and we need some help in this respect. Let me just read you a little line from, from the opening chapter here. Eventually a man needs to throw off all indoctrination and begin to discover for himself what the father is and what masculinity is. For that task, ancient stories are a good help because they are free of modern psychological prejudices because they have endured the scrutiny of generations of women and men. They have endured the scrutiny of generations of women and men. And because they give both the light and dark sides of manhood, the admirable and the dangerous, their model is not a perfect man nor an overly spiritual man. <laughs> That's the model. We don't need perfect men. We don't need spiritual men. We don't need the guru with his legs crossed up on an elevated platform <clears throat> who's transcended all of the lusty earthiness of 
the human condition and of masculinity. We don't need the perfect man who's so disciplined that he wakes up at 4 a.m. Um, and always does the right thing um, and never wanders. Uh, we don't need the, this, this kind. We need, we need, we need, the, we need the revelation that we carry within us as men. I'm speaking as a man now. The admirable and the terrible. It's there, and and the myths help us get in contact with that, with that, and and help lead us toward a kind of sacred masculine that is good. It's good for us and good for the world and good for the community and good for our sons and our grandsons. And God, we need that. We're in such a such a mess right now, and. Many of the people that I work with one-on-one, uh, I'll, I'll, by the way, I'll sometimes recommend reading of Iron John and, and we, get, we get to discuss it, which is part of what, what inspired um, the class that I'm, I'd like to offer and also the podcast. I even got an email from someone I work with that said, do a podcast on Iron John. I thought, okay, <clears throat> the time is right. So um, I wanna thank, I'll thank him right now personally for lighting the match on the on the brush pile that had already been gathered. So, okay, where do I want to go from here? I want to talk a little bit about the opening story. I'm just going to tell it to you and make some brief comments, and then I'll end with a, a Rilke poem. So the opening chapter is called The Pillow and the Key. And here's how the story begins. It's the story of a kingdom and a kingdom and a castle. And not too far outside the castle is, are some woods, a wooded area, a deep forest, we could say. And over time, people stopped going into this forest because they heard rumors about the forest, that it was a dangerous place. And one day, a hunter comes to the castle seeking adventure a hunter and his dog. And he's seeking a real adventure and he starts to ask around and maybe eventually even ask the king, you know, is there anything to do around here? You know, I need some aim. I need some purpose. I need some direction. I, I want to go on the big adventure. And, and he says, well, there's not much. The kingdom's in pretty good order here. You know, the king and queen are happy. Everybody's got a job. Things are settled down. Um, I mean, there are some woods nearby. There's a forest nearby. But if you go in there, hunters like yourself don't come back and the hunter thinks to himself well this is exactly the kind of place i've been looking for so off he sets into the forest and he goes pretty deep into the forest and he's walking along the edge of the pond and out from the pond comes a hand that snatches his dog and takes his dog down under the water and the hunter thinks to himself, this must be the place. This must be the place that takes the warriors and hunters and wanderers and snatches them. And um, deeply curious as he is and wanting to seek the fullness of adventure, he goes back to the realm of the castle and recruits three men and they come back. And they begin to bucket out the water. Bucket by bucket by bucket, this muddy, mucky, uh, 
pond and lake. And till one day, after great effort and great time, they reach the bottom of the lake. And at the bottom of the lake is a hairy man, a wild man, covered from head to toe with wiry, rusty colored, muddy colored hair. And they realize this is the reason. This is the reason the, that hunters go missing in the forest. And so they decide to do what any kind of young hunter, young warrior might do, is come back to the castle with their kind of trophy. And they bring the, the wild man back to the castle and show him to the king. And the king thanks them very much for their service. Now the forest is going to be free of... of of this beast, of this being, and people can now wander freely into the forest. And what's to be done with this wild man? Well, let's lock him up. So the king locks him up in a cage, puts him in the middle of the town, and gives the key to the queen. That's the opening story. There's a little bit more to it. I'll come to it in a second, but there's an opening story here. And What's it trying to communicate? Well, first of all, we can say that somewhere in our psyches is a forest that's off limits. And what has kept that place in the forest off limits is the king and the queen, the father and the mother, the archetypal father, the archetypal mother. And we could say civilization and culture, the castle, the things where, the place where order reigns supreme. You know, can't, we can't have a kind of wildness. Um, we, can't, we can't have beasts with wiry hair hanging about. We have to um, cut ourselves off from it. We have to post no trespassing signs. We have to warn people and ourselves, don't go into the forest, don't go into the forest. It's like the opening line of, of Dante's Inferno, I awoke, I think it's Dante. I'm going to go with, it is. I, in the middle of my life, I awoke in a dark wood. This is someone who has wandered off into the forest that's been off limits. We could say the part of the unconscious realm that we left. Um, we left behind as we left childhood behind, we left the imagination behind and the dreams behind and, and the playfulness behind and the wildness behind, the exuberance behind and the fiery passions behind. And they went into the forest and they're buried at the bottom of a lake. And the story is saying that something's off about the kingdom. I mean, it's squeaky clean, but it lacks vitality. And that's the state, in some respects, of the modern contemporary man at present. Um, and if we want to grow up, this is the opening, this is the opening image. We got to go to the forest. And going to the forest isn't as easy as saying, hey, I'm here, I'd like to recover the off-limits part of my psyche. I'd like to recover it. Could I have it? You know, Would you come out to play and could you put some clothes on and, and we can go and have a chat in the coffee house? You know, uh, No. You have to, first of all, 
go on such a dangerous adventure that you might be taken and your dog might be taken. So that's, that requires a tremendous amount of courage. I mean, just to leave the presence of the king and the queen in the first place, most, most people don't even do that. But once in the forest, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of bucketing work. Sometimes I think about um, you know, inner work as an archaeological dig, which is a similar kind of image. Layer by layer we go down. That's what's happening here. And the deeper you go, the really the more scary it becomes. And it's painstakingly slow. That's my point right now. I think Iron John, one reason why I'm offering a nine-month class is that it just takes time just to even read the book and to awaken to the imagination and, and, and to the subtleties of the book and um, to what's buried in one's own psyche. I mean, I've been reading Iron John for almost 10 years. I've read it four or five times. I'm reading it again in preparation for the class. And these things take time. To recover, to bucket takes time. So that's just, you know, in a pill-popping culture, in a pill-popping culture where there's a pill for everything, we don't want to take the time to do the bucket work, but it's a non-negotiable. The wild man just doesn't waltz out of the forest holding your hands, you know, you know, puts flowers around your neck and, and all is good. No, bucket by bucket. So what does that mean? That means you have to start facing your what, what I would call your sub-personalities and complexes, your hang-ups, your coping strategies, your escapist, your addict, your wounded child, your loyal soldier, um, your lion tamer, your own tyrant, layer by layer, bucket by bucket. What's beneath that and what's beneath that and what's beneath that? And even getting closer to your deeper wounds, the wounds that you have carried for a long, long time. Some of them you're aware of and some of you're not. Some of them you're not. Even the sacred wounds that are the deepest of all, you're, you're, you're starting to get close. So bucket by bucket, and at the bottom of this initial confrontation is a wild, hairy creature that you know very little about. And he's downright scary. He's instinctual. Um, he's of the forest. He's lusty. He's wild. He has the kind of look in his eyes that can pierce you and run you straight through. And the probably the proper response is be afraid and lock him up. And that's another clue as to what we tend to do when we, when we first discover these parts. They've been down there so long, <laughs> eating dogs and other things, that when they first come out of hiding, so to speak, the, the thing we think is proper is to put it in the cage and to say, okay, it's out. it, it came out of the open, but it's contained. It, it's contained and... Um, and is named here, the beginning of the name is something like Iron John because of the rusty colored, iron colored, wiry hair that's like the cage itself, locked away and really mostly forgotten. We'll see in a moment that people kind of forget about the wild man over time. He's sort of, you know, I guess you can gaze over at him there in the cage, safely contained, 
mastered by the king and the queen. Um, but he's sadly in a cage. Which is better, I don't know. To stay in the pond, completely unaware? Um, or is it better to be locked in a cage? I don't know. Maybe that maybe it's not a choice here. So um, at this point in the story, the there's a scene change, kind of like the way dreams work. And in this scene change, we meet the king's son. And the king's son is playing one day with a golden ball. It's his golden ball given to him by his parents. It's an image of of wholeness. <clears throat> it's something we all kind of carry when we're eight years old. We, we still know something of the intact nature of who we are. Uh, we're, left, we're less self-conscious at eight. Uh, we've yet to enter the fires of adolescence, of questions of identity and belonging and um, we know something of that. In fact, one of the great tragedies is, is when a child grows up in a really traumatizing environment and is never given a golden ball or barely ever tastes it or never held one in his or her hand. Um, or it's, it's very hidden from their present consciousness because of the, of the traumas. So here this boy has a taste of the golden ball. It's also, it's also an image of his, of his coming kingship. Gold being associated with, with the kingdom, and and it, for him it's just a toy, and someday it might be more. I just popped into my head the, is it the snitch in Harry Potter, the little flying golden ball? Um, why is that the most elusive and in the game of Quidditch? Well, it's because it's an image of the same thing. It's the golden ball that that the boy. Uh, has and might be able to have that will launch him into a greater kingship right now it's just a game but you can see that that harry carries a certain kind of magnificence that he's yet to grow into and having the golden ball is is an is is an image of that so anyway as the story unfolds he's playing with the golden ball and he drops it and rolls into the cage and he's terrified he has to look at here at the at the wild man the beast the hairy beast inside the cage and um and at first he runs away it's too much it's too scary what's it going to do but uh, eventually he you know faces the wild man and the wild man says are you you know are you looking for your golden ball and and he says i'll give it to you uh, if you'll let me out of the cage and the boy runs away <laughs> And maybe this happens something like two or three times as myths tend to go. And um, each time that the, the wild man says, you can have your golden ball back if you let me out of the cage. Now, what is this saying at this point? It's saying, if you want the golden ball, if you want a taste of your own wholeness, the sphere, if you want the to carry in your hand your own radiant magnificence, which is king-like, I can't be locked up like this. But the boy knows if he lets the wild man out of the cage, he's going to get into serious trouble. Who knows what harm will 
be caused either to him or to the kingdom or to his mom and dad or whatever. And eventually the boy has the courage to speak back. And this is a very important part in the story. The fact that the boy opens his mouth, Robert Bly points this out and speaks because that's part of what's being asked. We must have a conversation with the deep, instinctual, wild nature of who we are. We have to open our mouth. We have to get curious, in other words. And the boy says, I can't let you out of the cage because I don't know where the key is. And there's something that, I mean, I can even feel a bit of my own grief and sadness here, just saying those lines. I would let you out, but I don't know where the key is. I don't, I'm not in possession of the key. And that's what it can feel like at a certain age. I long for a deeper relationship with my own sacred masculine. I long for a deeper relationship with the wild man within. I long for the coming together of the, these worlds. Or I just thought of a long time ago, I did a podcast on Jacob um, and, e- and Esau. Uh, these are, are, are two manifestations of, of the human psyche. I say more broadly, I think the Bible speaks a little more broadly here, but, but certainly of the masculine psyche where you have the mother-pleasing, stay-at-home, good boy, Jacob, deceiver, liar, cheater, and you have the wild man who sleeps under the stars and eats meat. Um, Jacob eats lentils um, and, and eats meat um, and, and is his father's favorite and is hairy. Do you, do you, do you see what, what's happening here? By the way, Iron John, I just want to say, is um, at least minimum a thousand years older than Christianity even. So um, and comes from a different part of the world, but you can see, that's what I mean, there's archetypal. The archetypal nature of the wild man, the hairy beast, is in the, is in the Jacob and Esau story. Esau is the wild, hairy, wiry, rusty, red part of who we are. And they're split. The brothers are split here. So I could say a whole lot more about that. I'll pause for the time being. Um... But I can feel the grief of just not knowing where the key is. I don't even know where the I don't even know where the F and key is, you know. And 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 Iron John slash Wild Man knows, and he says the key's under your mother's pillow. The key is under your mother's pillow. In this sense, Freud was right. The mother complex is a real thing, and that's of course in the Jacob and Esau story. Jacob is madly under the mother complex and deceives his father and makes a mess of things, by the way. So it's under the mother's pillow and what you have to do is steal it. Now, uh, Robert Bly sort of, you know, he's very trickstery in this book and says, you know, the passive male might just go up to his mom and ask him for it, but the mom's not going to give it away, you know. You know, if we could just sit down and have a nice chat, have a glass of wine, maybe you'll give me the key, and, and, and away we go. He says, <clears throat> it has to be stolen. It has to be snatched. It has, you, have to, you have to break your mother's heart. Or as Jesus put it, you have to hate your father and mother. You have to break with convention. And I'm not saying, you know, 
This is not the same thing as saying, well, just become a rebel, rebel, you know, like follow the band fish around and, you know, go to raves and don't do what your parents say. No, it's something far more clever, far more dangerous and far more risky. And that's to steal the key, to begin your own process of separation from these complexes that we carry. I don't care if your mom and dad are dead right now. Maybe they died a long time ago. It doesn't mean the, the psychic grip they have on your life uh, isn't firm. It, it still is. I, you know, I've said this before. I say anything on this podcast, but I remember when my own dad died, my, my therapist at the time said, it's possible that you'll continue to live as if he's very much alive. You know, I was like, wow, okay, yep, you're right. So beginning that process, and, and in the old world, that we had initiation rites of passage that were associated with this, where boys often were just taken from their parents, were taken from their mothers, um, snatched away and sent on a wander or sent into a cave or sent on a into a fast or a ceremony with the uncles and the, and the elders and <clears throat> taken out of that. Um, that's a way of, of ramping up, I think, the psychic necessity of, of stealing the key, getting some ownership back. It means you're going to break your mother's heart. That's what it means. There's no other way around it. And those who remain deeply gripped with a mother complex, refuse to steal the key. And therefore, the, their own wild nature, their own deep nature, their own full capacities for the sacred masculine remain in the cage. So this is no, uh, no light task here. And it's not a one-time action. It's not like, well, next time my mom says something to me, I'm going to confront her, you know? <laughs> well, maybe, good, good. Um, but it might be, might and often is a far more subtle thing. And it gets very complex with marriage. I don't want to talk about that right now. But oftentimes, as you know, the mother complex just gets transferred right onto the spouse, right onto the wife. Well, maybe she's got the key. (laughs) Not only that, you may think she has the golden ball. She's got the clue to my wholeness. This is the whole, you know, you complete me thing. And maybe I'll just have to ask my wife if I can have the key. So, yeah, you can see you can see where I'm going. Those of you who are married, who have a significant other, who have lived with someone for a long time, know what I'm talking about. So um, part of, I think, part of what's needed here, from my opinion, is to really get in touch with your longings at this point in the story. Your real deep grief, that's how it came for me, around loss of contact with the wild. Um, And the grief associated and the longing associated with with wanting to break from the castle. From, like I read a few minutes ago, um, eventually a man needs to throw off all indoctrination and begin to discover for himself what the father is. You have to read the first chapter to see much more about that conversation and what the masculine is. And um, that's the beginning of the stealing of the key. So something interesting happens at the story at this point. The boy steals the key 
opens the cage and pinches his finger. There's a wound involved. This is going to hurt. And I just, I cannot say it more directly. You're gonna get hurt. The journey is painful. I wish it was all bliss and union and, and manifesting good energy and, and um, you know, floating up into the ether. No, if you're gonna let the wild man out, you're gonna get hurt in the process. The boy's gonna get hurt. He's gonna have a wound. His finger's gonna be pinched. And, and the boy panics at this point and says, now everybody's gonna know I've got this wound on my finger. Thanks for the golden ball, but I can't exactly go back into the castle. I can't go back to mom and dad. And, and Iron John knows exactly what he means. And he says, okay, come with me to the forest. <clears throat> he puts the boy up on his shoulders and tells him, you can never go back to your mom and dad. Never. You can never go back. But I have treasures more than you will ever need. And off into the forest they go. If this ever happens to you, what a glorious, strange gift to be carried on the shoulders of of the wild man into the forest to learn the secrets of the forest to learn the secrets of the treasures what was once terribly off limits and very scary and dangerous and snatched hunters and warriors apparently there's treasure in there that you know nothing about i thought it was all shadowy darkness and evil and um but apparently there's more and so off into the forest, the boy goes to learn the lessons of the forest, which is, you know, part two in the story. And, and he goes into the, to the forest more conscious of, of the wounds. And that's really important. The kind of becoming wound, not wound identified, but wound aware. Here they are. And to already begin to have a sense of, of the direction one must go to heal these wounds or to experience some healing. They never get fully healed, especially the deep wounds, the core wounds never heal. I hate to tell you, but they don't. Uh, but contact with, uh, with the forest and the secrets of the forest has their own healing-like energy. So, um, yep, I think... That's where I'm going to pause in the story here and ask you, what did you hear? What'd you hear? You know, this podcast isn't just for men. I mean, it's for everyone and it's for, it's for, it's for those who live with men or near them or have brothers or sisters or siblings or friends. And what'd you hear in here? What seems true in a way that's hard to even describe the truth? And you kind of need a myth to get near it. <laughs> you need a series of uh, fictitious stories to tell the truth. Yep, it's like that. What did you hear? What resonated? What bothered you? What, what stirred the water? What stirred the cauldron? Um, what longing is starting to wake up what grief is present where is the resistance i have to say i mean i was very resistant to this book many times i just shut the book what is he talking about this can't be true is he saying i'm uninitiated um that i don't know what i'm talking about that i haven't done the work you know yeah uh resistance i think is a is a very important clue that we're on the right track actually 
The question is, will we have the courage to steal the key or, or will the resistance only prove that, yep, the wild man needs to be locked away forever, maybe even return to the forest, reburied under the pond, and let's just get back to the happy-go-lucky um, kingdom of the king and queen. So let's end with a Rilke line here. Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors. Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east. And I think he's using church as a symbol here. And his children say blessings on him as if he were dead. And another man who remains inside his own house stays there, inside the dishes and in the glasses, so that his children have to go far out into the world toward that same church which he forgot. Thanks for listening.